Hey, everybody. This is Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is David Burkus. Dave is a professor of leadership and innovation. He's also a speaker. But more importantly, he's the best-selling author of a really great book called Pick a Fight, How Great Teams Find a Purpose Worth Rallying Around. Dave is on the podcast today because I am someone who is motivated by a fight. I like a battle. I like a good cause. And in this book, David asks really great questions like, as an organization, what are we fighting for? What are we doing to change the world? And why are we doing it? It's such a great perspective to have now, especially in the age of a pandemic, because if you're not fighting for something, if you don't know your purpose, your mission, what are you doing? I also had Dave on the show because this book is in Kindle format only. And some people love it, some people hate it, but I think there's never been a better time for audiobooks and especially an audiobook like this. And so I strongly recommend it. So if you like talking to someone who can motivate you to think about your job in a bigger way, to find your purpose and to get excited about kicking butt and taking names in your career, well, I think you're gonna enjoy this awesome podcast with my friend, David Burkus. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure to have you on Punk Rock HR. You know, before we get started, the main reason you are on this podcast today is because something happened to you. (laughs) Why don't you tell us what happened to you, which prompted me to reach out? Yeah, so I released a new book, and I maybe I should put book in scare quotes, right? In February 25th, and did the normal outreach to podcasters and media and all of that sort of stuff. And the thing I'm not telling you is that the book is exclusive with Audible. So it is only available in audio format. Leaders are readers, but more and more they read with their ears, right? So we were making a very calculated bet that why not? I mean, I wrote the whole thing more like a script than a book. And so why not optimize for that format? And as I was reaching out to all these different podcasters, I got, I got this one guy that literally was like, nah, there's no physical book. That's not real. I'm not going to bring you on. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? Like, there's still this new idea we're bringing, which is all a book really is, right? Like a book is a way to, I mean, it's an excuse to get out there and talk about the new idea. And I was just thinking, well, this is the better way to get out there to get this idea to the target audience. But, you know, it was a very sort of old school mindset of it's not real unless it's a physical sort of print thing. So I totally understand people that are like, I'm a Luddite and I prefer to read with my eyes. I totally get that. In fact, one of like the bonuses for early orders that I did was like, I'll send you a Kindle version. Like, I mean, it's a terrible version. I formatted it on my Mac, right? <laughs> right. It'll never be for sale. It's, so if you want to read with your eyes, buy the audio and then, I don't know, watch as I read it to you, like, a, like an old school read along like I do with my six-year-old. I found this whole thing so fascinating because, you know, podcasting is still, although it feels like everybody has a podcast, they don't. And it's still a new form. It's still a nascent emerging media channel that has all kinds of potential. And you would think that a podcaster, especially one who's interested in forward-thinking business ideas and mixing up the world of work, would love your message and wouldn't care if you had something written in stone or if it was written through your voice. So I wonder if you think this is just somebody who is trying to cut the wheat from the chaff, trying to figure out who's credible, who isn't, is this a backwards thinking podcaster? Like, let's get into the head of this individual. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I felt like writing back, you know what, I don't want to be on your show because you're not on terrestrial radio anyway, right? Like, you're not on an AM channel. So therefore, you're not a real show, right? Uh, sick burn, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't. 
I don't know. I don't know. Nowhere in his argument did I see that the idea was separating wheat from the chaff, etc. To give him the benefit of the doubt, I want to say that he's done enough audience research to know that his audience prefers to read physical books. But let's be honest, there are very few podcasters that have ever even done an audience survey, let alone found out that their audience prefers physical books. And in fact, I would assume the opposite. I mean, if you're listening to this, you obviously found space in your life for audio, not necessarily for... You're not going to read the transcript on Corey's website, right? So yeah, I, I, you know... And the irony is this is somebody that should probably be forward thinking, but has very backward value judgments. But that's, but I mean, that's, to be fair, that's the, not to put myself in this category, but that's the nature of good ideas, right? They're almost always rejected when we use old school criteria. Xerox invented the personal computer, right? Kodak, the digital camera, like history is full of these things. So I'm not all that offended, but I am a little baffled. I am as well. So you went out onto Instagram, which tends to be my preferred way to waste time. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm scanning along, just trying to figure out what am I going to do with my day? I'll kill a few more hours. And here was this post on Instagram about your experience. And I thought, if anybody deserved a place on my podcast, it's you for complaining about that. I mean, that's brave because you don't want to isolate future podcasters and you don't want to look like you're an old crank and you're not. You are an individual who really challenges the status quo. You have big ideas about the world of work and you're a nice guy. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I welcome the opportunity to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming today. Yeah. No, again, thank you for seeing it. Thank you for getting it. You know, I I came to the conclusion that I didn't mind, I don't know, complaining about it was probably the best word. Because if some other podcaster were to read that and say, you know, that guy's right and it shouldn't be, then I don't want to be on that show. In the the same way, like the, the book itself is called Pick a Fight. And there's a very specific reason we chose that word. But I've gotten a little pushback, ironically, a lot from HR people on the the use of the F word, not that F word, but the word fight. And ironically, one of them was an HR person and a defense contractor, which I thought was a little hypocritical, but that's beyond the point. Do we not know ourselves here? I mean, that's another topic for another day. And I know you are a man of psychology, but tell us a little bit more about Pick a Fight because I just love the title. And I believe that in order to stake a flag in the world, you have to pick a fight. You have to go into the marketplace with a big idea that irritates people. So tell us about your book, your thesis, and who it's for. Yeah. So I mean, it's not even a debate anymore about whether or not your organization needs a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. What's debatable is how good you are at conveying that sense of mission, right? We talk about all the time the importance of a purpose-driven organization. What we give most people is the mission statement, which is a pretty terrible rendition of what we're about. Wait, wait, wait. Can you differentiate that between the two for my audience? Like, What's the difference between having a purpose and having a mission statement? I mean, fundamentally, in theory, they shouldn't be all that different, right? In practice, a mission statement is a document or a sentence or two that goes on the front of something like a 10K that the board of directors and potential investors read. Yeah, not very motivating. Right, it's not at all, right? (laughs) And so my argument in Pick a Fight is that if we want to talk about purpose and a sense of mission and all that sort of stuff, then we can ignore the mission statement. What you really need to give your people is a clear and concise answer to the question, what are we fighting for? Why are we doing this? I think we're past the time where people, talented people, People for sure, if not all people, don't want to join a company. They want to join a crusade. They want to join a revolution. They want to be a part of something that impacts the world. And I, and I use the term fight specifically because it has to be a purpose in my belief that there are stakes. There is something that will happen. The world will not be a brighter place if we don't accomplish this mission. It's not enough to just say, oh, here's our grand vision of how we as a company are going to grow. That doesn't necessarily motivate people unless you can say these are the stakes if we fail. And that 
can rally people, uh, like you said, plant a flag in the ground and rally people a whole lot more. So there's a very deliberate reason we choose the term fight. The other caveat is it is almost never a fight against competitors. That very rarely motivates any employees. Sometimes it motivates the senior leaders. It usually motivates the founder, right? But the people below that are usually not motivated. Coke does a great job positioning itself against Pepsi and vice versa, but I promise you people on the front lines don't care. No, not at all. When I think about picking a fight, I also can see why it would be a little controversial for HR professionals because the world of work now is all about the employee experience. It's a little softer, right? It's about collaboration and team building and really being empathetic and picking a fight. It'll rankle a bunch of HR ladies. I don't know how else to say that. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. The the irony though is how you do that team building and that bonding is to point out this is what we're about and there are stakes to our failure. Outside adversity has almost always bonded divergent groups of people who realize they need to do it. I mean, in the book, we tell the story, very, very old school story of the Battle of New Orleans and during the War of 1812, which should have never happened. Also, the US should have never won. The reason it did is that Andrew Jackson, who is not exactly a friend of diversity, pulled together a diverse group of people, right? And we see it time and time again when groups feel like they are threatened from the outside, their existence is threatened, their status is threatened, etc. When there is some bigger purpose and there are stakes to our failing, we put aside the silos and the politics and the turf wars. We say we need to actually do that. I mean, we're recording this in an incredibly polarized time in the United States. And and my argument is like, nobody's really picked a fight since the Cold War, right? And then this is a bad example because countries, and I just said the thing with company, but you know what I mean? Like there was a very clear flag in the ground with the moon landing, right? And the space race and that sort of thing. We even had that in a really long time. And so what do we do to kill that time? We start picking fights with each other. And that is definitely not what I'm talking about to the HR people who are listening to this. That's definitely not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is pointing out, this is what we stand for. This is a norm that the rest of the world says is acceptable that we refuse to accept. And if we don't make this change, there are real negatives that could happen as a result of that. So let's put aside the petty differences and let's move forward. Well, I think it's easy to pick a fight. Not easy. It's never easy to pick a fight. But it's easier when you're an emergent company, right? You're a startup and you've got all this energy and all this excitement. It's also easy when you're a larger organization and you have resources, right? And you can think creatively about what the big battle is. What about most of us in America who are in this murky middle? You know, small to medium-sized businesses. We're going along. We're just trying to make payroll. How do you break people from that complacency? How do you shake them up and get them excited in the fight maybe they once had in their mind, but can no longer see? Yeah. So I, I mean, I deal with this a lot. My, my experience is basically exactly what you said. In fact, I, though I don't know that the big companies do this all that well, it's very easy for an entrepreneurial organization to be mission-driven, right? But in my experience, when the actual founder or founders are no longer... Everyone's no longer directly reported to them. When they can't touch and see every day everyone. I mean, you know this. That's when company culture takes over, right? And that's unfortunately when everything gets to be watered down as well. And so one of the things as I worked with organizations before, during, and after doing all the research for this book that I found is it's not actually... At that point, I don't believe it's actually about what the founder thinks the mission should be anymore. It's about what will resonate with the largest group of employees. So my advice, like the quick and dirty way to do this, my advice is to ask as many people as possible, in your own words, what do we do here? And how does what you do help us do that? And then you listen for the ways that they describe 
the industry, the ways that they describe competitors or competitors assessment of us, or the way that they describe customers and how we interact. And through that, you can kind of, I feel like there's three different, based on the research, there's three different templates that I give of different fights that you can choose. But what matters is first to decide which one's actually going to get your people most energized. And it may not be, I mean, I, I worked with a really fun organization all last year that the founder was sold out that he was picking a revolution. And in reality, like, no, it's not actually about your fight at all. It's about your customer's fight. And that's what actually motivates your people. So you got to find that out first. And then usually it conforms to one of those templates. You know, I think if you poll most employees and the numbers show this, there's this high level of disengagement, right? So I'm curious as to what happens when you poll your workforce and you ask, what do you stand for? What are you fighting for? What do you think this company fights for? What does this company believe in? I bet you get a lot of shoulder shrugs, right? Which demonstrates what the market is right now in the world of work, which is broken, in my opinion. Precisely. And, and the reason I, I don't even ask a question like, what do we stand for? Is I want to ask such an open-ended question that the people who are disengaged and say, we sell widgets, will tell you we sell widgets, right? Because I think a lot of times the founding teams, the senior leadership teams need to hear that, that whatever is on the front of your About Us page of your company website, that's not resonating with people. Because they say that what they say is we we sell widgets, right? But you know, by contrast, like one of my favorite organizations that I did not profile them in the book, mostly because I'm saving them for some other big reveal. No, not, not really. I can't wait um, for that. Yeah. <laughs> is, there's a company based out of Vancouver called Pila Case, or actually now they're just called Pila. And they make, I'm holding one up because we're doing video. I'm sorry, guys, if you're listening to this, you can't hear it. They make cell phone cases. The difference is their cell phone cases biodegrade in 10 years versus everyone else's cell phone cases sit in a landfill for 10,000, right? You ask anyone inside that organization, what do we do here? They'll say, we're fighting for a waste-free future. We just happen to sell cell phone cases, but this is what we're actually doing. And what I love about their example, they expanded recently and the next product they made. Yeah, if you made cell phone cases, Lori, guess what would the next product you make? By every measure of business school competitive strategy, what's the next market you should go into? You know, I have no idea, but I'm going to guess that it's something in your car that should hold the cell phone. Yeah. I mean, something in your car that should hold the cell phone, tablet cases, right? And the next product they made is sunglasses. (laughs) <laughs> well, I can see it with the with the materials. That makes sense. Well, so the idea is the materials, but also what are the things that consumers use and lose most frequently? What are the things that are using plastic that get basically reused all the time? I mean, we lose sunglasses basically at the end of every summer, right? We change phones, we get a new cell phone case. They tell me now they're working on flip-flops because that's like the next thing that we... So that's what their choice is. Forget what the proper vertical market is, right? And so that's where, you know, that's a great example of when everybody can, can see it and it's beyond just what you sell. And that's why I love a question like, what do we do here? Because it's really kind of a moment of truth for senior leaders or whoever's in charge of bringing that sense of mission that it may not be working if you can't get a cohesive answer. I love that your career is building on really big ideas in the marketplace and exposing them to all of us, right? Sharing them with all of us. I think that's brilliant and genius. And I stumbled on your work, I don't know how, however long ago, through one of your TED Talks that talked a little bit about pay transparency. And honestly, you won me over with that <laughs> TED Talk. So we'll include a link to that. Really? Because I did not win a lot of HR people over uh-uh. that it was It was genius <laughs> and it was amazing. And I would love for you to tell us what that TED Talk was about. And again, I'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah, no, absolutely happy to. So yeah, this is an issue. Actually, I shouldn't say I lost a lot. This is a very like 50-50. You, if you're in HR, you either love this idea or you hate this idea. And the truth is, it really is a reflection on whether or not you've been able internally to have a fair pay system, right? Because if you don't have a fair system and there's gender inequities and people are overpaid based on their negotiation skills and not their performance, please don't listen to anything I'm about to say, right? But if you have a fair system, the interesting thing that we find is we assume that secrecy is what keeps the peace. And in reality, secrecy 
secrecy is often what's causing strife. So there's a I mean, decades of research, line of motivational research called equity theory that says that people are always judging their inputs and outputs to the people around them. We judge how hard we work and how hard we get paid and then what other people do. The problem is, especially in a secrecy condition, we are terrible judges of how hard people work, but also of how much people get paid. I mean, statistically, there's been a lot of research that shows we are likely to assume our colleagues are overpaid. We're likely to assume our managers are underpaid, which surprised me when I was researching this book because I figured we'd think Michael Scott managers are overpaid. But in reality, underpaid is a bigger problem because underpaid means why would I bother to go into management if there's only that little of reward for all that extra work, right? And it's little stuff, right? Like we noticed that so-and-so has the corner office, so therefore they must be, well, no, maybe it's just like it was a lottery. You don't, you know, We don't know how that happened. They drive to work in a Mercedes. Great. Maybe his wife's a doctor. Like that has nothing to do with what he actually gets paid. So we're really bad at making that and it creates a lot of strife. I'm not surprised that HR professionals were antagonistic or didn't love this idea of pay transparency because organizations have gone out of their way to even mask pay to HR leaders. So you only get to see a certain amount of pay for these people or you don't get to see your peers or your colleagues. And I just think we have this system where the status quo is terrible, but what we fear is worse. And the reason is that in that secrecy condition, every time there is a, a little like light through the window, right? Every time there's a little pinhole of light over the cover, all hell breaks loose. And it's bad news generally. Like we're disappointed or we feel ripped off or we believe our negotiating skills served us well and it turns out they didn't. So HR professionals are often disappointed when the truth is revealed. Yeah. The problem is that secrecy condition is exactly what allowed all those disparities to happen, right? And that moment that somebody leaves a pay stub on the copier and now all hell breaks loose, whatever. If you are striving for for, even if you're not there yet, if you're striving for a fair system and you feel like you are fair enough, then a lot of the research suggests and a lot of the experiences of companies that are moving this way suggest that you might as well be transparent with it. Now, it doesn't mean you have to take like a buffer as an example that I used in the TED Talk and in my book under new management. It doesn't mean you have to post a document online that says, here are all of our employees and here's what they get paid, right? I look at it as like a continuum between like that on the far end and then total secrecy, fire people for asking what their coworkers get paid, which is actually illegal in the country that you and I are both in. Not a lawyer though, that does not constitute legal advice. I think we all can move a little bit towards that. That might be saying, hey, here's the formula we use, or we set salaries on a tiering system like in the federal government and a lot of other state and local governments, and here are the tiers. And if you want to do the mental math to figure out what Sally gets paid, do it, right? But mostly it's just about being transparent with this is how we determine what your salary is. And of course, if you have problems with it, you're welcome to talk about them. Buffer, actually, I cited them earlier for a very specific example. I, I wrote the book in 2016. 2017, they had a bit of a, for lack of a better term, a hit piece on them that said, hey, this company is transparent and they still have a gender wage gap. That proves this whole thing is baloney. Well, here's what they found when they dug into the research. Buffer has a formula they use to calculate pay. And then they say what everybody's pay is. And when that formula was based on experience and the experience came in a couple different categories. One was, do you have three to five years experience? And one was five to eight years experience. Now you with a background in HR can probably already guess what happened here that caused that gender wage gap, which is that men with five years of experience were likely to say they had five to eight and women were likely to say three to five. And so they corrected that, removed the overlap in the formula, adjusted people's pay and move forward. And that's the big thing with transparency. As soon as you go transparent, it's not like rainbows are going to come out of like the back room and somebody's going to be riding on this pay equity unicorn through no your confetti. office. Are you kidding me? Right. It's, it's not, not, yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> 
what is going to happen is your conversation is going to have a different tone because now we're all in this together. Now we've said, here's how we determine if you got a problem with it, we can't hide it anymore. We have to engage you in that conversation. So again, my argument to HR leaders and even senior leaders of the organization, mostly I'm speaking to you CFOs because you're the ones that have the biggest problem with this idea. If you're listening to this show, which would be awesome because more CFOs probably do need to listen to this show. If you are striving for that fair system, then revealing what you're doing to ensure that fairness will only benefit. It might cause a couple town hall meetings and discussions and things that you've got to do in the interim. But if it's done in good faith, it will only benefit your organization in the long term. So you know what you're talking about in Pick a Fight in here with your TED Talk is really authentic, thoughtful, planned employee communications. And it's also treating individuals like adults, right? And having these interesting, relevant conversations with them, not being prescriptive, not being the police officers of your organization if you work in HR, but really engaging your workers as part of the solution to whatever problem you're trying to tackle. We don't even communicate well with the people we love. Yeah. So how do we do this at work? Like, how do we start to have these honest conversations? How do we start to ask important questions? How do we de-escalate it so it's not so threatening when we ask people about mission, purpose, money, all of these really heady and sometimes toxic topics? How do we go first and lead and have these conversations the right way? Yeah. So money and mission are probably two different conversations, right? On the money side, involve people early and often. One of my favorite companies ever on the transparency side is the tech company Summall. Dan Atkinson's brilliant. Dan Atkinson actually gave me one of my favorite quotes ever. And I threw it in the book, which is this idea that great leaders don't reinvent the product. They reinvent the factory. They reinvent the company so that employees can then do it, right? Which is an idea that I just love. And I put it at the end of the book and I should have put it in the beginning, but that's my, that was my bad. Anyway, you know, Dane talked about, we surveyed everybody first. We talked about how we're going to do this. We made it clear that because they had a very sort of democratic hiring process as well, we made it clear that you're going to see what potential new candidates are going to have. The biggest thing was it wasn't sort of this top-down, we're all going to go transparent decision. It was, do you want to do this? Here are the benefits, here are the cons. And luckily, when you're a smaller organization, you can do that, right? Yeah, mature, adult-like, you know, really measured, (laughs) responsible. I love it. If you're a large organization, I think you, again, look at that continuum and go, where can we start? We're in a total secrecy condition now. Maybe for a lot of organizations, probably almost around half in the United States of for-profit organizations, the first and best step they could make is just saying, hey, we won't fire you if you have of this conversation, right? Which again, is already something the National Labor Relations Board is not a big fan of. But just even saying that, you know, there are still, I I forget the stats and and truthfully, they're about four years old now, but there was something like 30% or 35% of organizations had a rule in their company like handbook that said, don't do this, which is contra, right? So you could just start there or you could just start with, you know, here is a lot of companies will anonymize the data and say, here's the breakdown by gender and ethnicity and experience and that sort. So you can just see here's where we are and here's what we're moving forward to. Those are all steps kind of along that journey. And then you keep taking those steps. Every couple months, you take another one. And if there's a huge blowback, you go, all right, this is where we should stay, right? Well, I can see as you're describing this, it's definitely a different path than talking to your employees about the mission and about what battles they're going to fight. So tell us a little bit about how to have that mature conversation. Yeah. So this one, I believe, is more about... One of the things I believe firmly, and thankfully, there's some research starting this. I actually... It's weird to me. The least popular Adam Grant study, I mean, he has a ton of great research on a bunch of stuff, has to do with this idea of salience and and mission salience and this idea that employees really don't receive a sense of mission and purpose than those sort of stories when they come from senior leaders, as much as when they come from each other or come from customers or stakeholders, etc. And so to me, that really emphasizes... I have believed for a long time that you don't cast a vision, right? You don't go off on on an 
overpriced offsite come back with a glass plaque and say, this is our mission statement. Yeah, but that's the 1990s or even Jack Welsh style. I know. And people made a ton of money and I could totally make a ton of money doing those workshops. And I don't know why I'm not, right? <laughs> right? No, I know why I'm not. <laughs> you know why you're not. You're, that's why you're here on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you start again by looking at what's going to resonate most with people and then and the words they use if they're more customer oriented versus industry oriented in the ways we're changing the industry or if they're more about how we compare to our competitors. And there are three templates of fights that I lay out in the book. Real quick, there's the revolutionary fight, which is the whole industry says this is acceptable and we refuse to accept that. We're going to try and change the industry. Pila case is a great example of that. The whole industry accepts that plastics are fine, whatever. Let's just make the lowest price possible. We refuse to accept that. We think we're not going to change consumerism, but we can make it waste free. And so we're going after that, right? That's the revolution. There's also the underdog fight. It's not in the book, but Netflix is actually my favorite example of a company with the underdog fight. If you listen to the way they talk, I mean, they're a billion dollar organization. We all have or steal accounts from, from people. We're all familiar with them, but they were the underdog against Blockbuster. Then they were the underdog against Cable. Now they're the underdog against Hollywood, right? They are always, even as they grow, they're consistently framing what they're doing as that sort of underdog fight. We're going to prove the naysayers wrong, the critics wrong. We're going to prove we can hang with you. I was originally born in Philadelphia. I lean on the underdog fight because our greatest sports hero is a fictional character who lost a boxing match. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a big, a big fan of that one. And then there's the ally fight, which is it's not actually about our fight. It's about what our customers or some stakeholder is fighting for. And here's how we help them win that fight. So depending on what you're hearing from your people, what actually resonate, you can kind of tease out which one of these we are. You ask that question or, you know, with a lot of large organizations, I'll run, give me a cross section of about two dozen people and we'll ask a bunch of questions designed to tease out what your opinions on the industry are compared to competitors, all that sort of stuff. And you usually arrive by the end of like a three hour kind of session of asking these different questions with there are way more stories in one bucket than the other. And now you've got those stories. And you know, I mean, there's a ton of research on company culture, but I boil it down to stories and artifacts. So the leader's job at that point isn't to just keep saying, this is our mission. The leader's job is to say, what are the stories that reinforce the path that we're on? And how can we share them and make them easier for people to share across wide? And then what are the artifacts that really symbolize or reinforce that story? How can we imbue them in everything that we are doing in company meetings or, or visuals that go on the website, whatever it is. So one of my favorite companies that is the Ally Fight, this is the one I was talking about before that thought it was a revolution, turned out to be an Ally Fight, is this little organization down in Savannah, Georgia. They're a baseball team called the Savannah Bananas. Oh yeah, we we love the Savannah Bananas over here. Dude, right? Yeah. So they are, they are brilliant when it comes to the artifacts. And rituals as well as sort of artifacts. So all their people are trained. If somebody comes through the box office, they all stand up. Why? Because we stand up for our fans, right? When they do sort of fan visits or they'll do like mystery shoppers, so they'll grab somebody and have them actually go to a game, not as an employee, but they literally have a fan shoes. So you can put yourselves in the shoes of the fan, right? And it's a specific set of shoes that you have to wear. It's like, all these things are little artifacts that kind of reinforce those stories. And they're also really good at telling and retelling those stories. And so that works way better than just, this is our mission. We're going to cast it and then we're going to worry about buy-in. No, figure out what the stories are and what the artifacts you can have are and let people share them. Well, I have really enjoyed and learned quite a bit from listening to your stories today and catching up with you. And I really want to know, as we wrap up the conversation, when you think about the world of work, when you think about business, when you think about leadership, what is on your mind right now? Because you've got a lot of stuff in your own archive, but what's the thing you're most excited about or that's kind of captured your attention right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously in this mode of let's talk about pick a fight, et cetera. But the reason I'm not doing those dumb offsites is that I believe that work-life balance is a myth. I believe that if work doesn't energize you, excite you, give you that sense of mission and purpose, that's going to spill over into your home life. If, you, if work just demotivates you, if people fling crap at you all day, some of that crap is going to get on your carpet when you come back home. Right. And so it doesn't matter how many hours a week you work and that sort of these are those are great discussions. They're discussions for a different person. What I'm trying to make sure is however many hours you show up at work, when you return home, you return better, a literally a better person, a more energized person than you were when you left, which is unfortunately not true for the majority of people. So there's a long uphill battle here, but that's all right. I love that conversation because I really feel that a little bit more professional detachment would be the thing that would fix a lot of issues at work. You know, we come to work and we project out all of this drama, all of this trauma, all of this stuff in our lives. And then we get it back because people are projecting that as well. And it becomes this like weird cycle. And I think if we just kind of take our foot off the gas a little bit at work and reinvest in our own lives and try to figure out who we are, what our values are, what are our fights, right? As human beings, what do we value? And then we bring that energy to work. I think that disrupts the negative cycle and makes work a little bit better. So I'd love this conversation. And when you're ready to have that, you got a book out about that? Let's talk about it. Yeah, no, that, that, will, that will definitely influence in some capacity. Yeah, I wonder, do you think it's easier for you and I though to say that? Because in a sense where, I mean, I hate to use this term, but we're sort of public figures. Like we've had to learn how to not read the Amazon reviews and all of that kind of stuff. That exact TED talk that we were talking about earlier, the very first comment, ever on that talk. I know it because I was checking the view counts and I read the very first comment. I've never read a single comment after that was, he's fat. That was literally the first comment, right? And maybe I was. I've lost 15 pounds since then. But the point is, at that moment, I had this grand sort of like, okay, I can choose to internalize this criticism or I can go, this guy did not get what I was going for. And so, you know, you learn over time to do that detachment. Do you think it's easier for us because of what we do that it's easier to learn that detachment than most folks at work? So I'm actually writing about this in my upcoming book. So forgive me for even talking about this. I don't mean this to be self-serving, but I feel that because I learned how to do it and I'm so ill-equipped to do most things in this world, (laughs) the fact that I learned how to do it means that I'm betting on other people that they can learn how to do it too. And so I think there's an art and a science behind professional detachment attachment and reorganizing your priorities, but it's not impossible. And if anything, I think the more we try to re-script our lives and figure out who we are and what we stand for and what we're all about, the better work will be. The more we'll be focused on what we need to accomplish. The more we'll understand that work is a conduit oftentimes to other things, to sending our children to school or saving for retirement, right? And it could be a mode of joy and it can also be a load of crap, but it doesn't have to be everything. And today is not tomorrow. So like these are are the things that I believe. And I didn't just believe them because I started blogging and then had a podcast and started writing. I saw what happened in the world of work when I worked in HR. And when people were all in on work, sometimes they were not all in on their own lives. And I'm trying to help people maintain an equilibrium, I think. And so again, I do have a real privileged position to be able to say a lot of these things, but I have to practice it every stinking day of my life. Otherwise, I'm like you and I'm out there like, how many hits did I get on my website? <laughs> you know. To be sure, I was only checking the view count because it was the first day. <laughs> oh, dude, I do that all the time. And I have to remind myself, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm proud of the work that I've done and my family loves me and I'm a good person. This is worth it. This is noble. So I think we're aligned. Oh, no, totally. And it doesn't matter if some crazy podcaster says this 
it's not a real book if there isn't a print edition, oh, right? Oh, God, so that there we guy go. was terrible, though. <laughs> I felt so angry for you. And I'm so glad we were able to correct that injustice in the world and have you on Punk Rock HR. Dave, it's been a real joy to get to know your story. Oh, no, thank you so much for, for reaching out there and for making this conversation happen. It's been awesome. We will have all of your contact information, all of it in the show notes. I won't ask you to do that trendy thing of where everybody can find you because it's your name, dude. And all of it will be listed. And again, thanks again for being an awesome guest. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Berkus. If you want more information on some of the cool things that he talked about, like his TED Talk on pay transparency, or even a link to the Pila case or the Savannah bananas, head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash punkrockhr dash 108. As always, Punk Rock HR was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Production. I know you want a podcast because you're sending me email about it. So if you have any questions, you want to learn some tips or tricks, there's a ton of free resources over at emeraldcitypro.com. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.